Good evening. My name is Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast that showcases my writing work in the horror, paranormal, supernatural, and southern gothic genres. This is the 100th episode of Haunted Muse, and it features the final installment of my first novel, Looking Glass Theory. Okay, so here we go. One last time, thank you so much for listening until the very end. Looking Glass Theory, Chapter 33. Although the next few months felt like a whirlwind, by Christmas, Nora's life had settled down again. Vicky had moved to Baltimore to take a position at Johns Hopkins before the ink was even dry on her divorce. Since Pierce had agreed to split everything down the middle and the monks arrived home for the holidays from college, both determined to take a year off in Colorado to ski and reassess, there was little to fight over. Pierce closed his real estate office and semi-retired, buying into a condo development firm in Florida. Callista returned to New York to start an MFA in dance so that she could teach there at the college level. Although she enjoyed teaching, she had missed her friends in the dance community, and it felt strained to her to live down south again, even in a liberal city like Asheville. Sheridan, in contrast, chose to remain. At first, Sheridan had tried to insist on paying rent or taking out a loan to buy the studio from her, but Nora flatly refused. Sheridan had become like a brother, and Nora enjoyed knowing that she had at least one family member still in state. Sheridan's patient, fatherly demeanor made him a huge hit with students, and after a lifetime of living in the city, he enjoyed having a whole new world of the outdoors open to him. Nora thought that Sheridan's choice to remain in Asheville probably also had a lot to do with the handsome architect he'd met in an independent business person's brunch hosted at the Biltmore, but she'd wait to see whom he brought as his plus one to the holiday dinner that she was hosting, to be sure. As for Nora, her dreams of living the leisurely life of a small boutique owner were ruined by her studio's popularity. By October, demand was so high for her work, she'd had to hire two full-time assistants to help, and in November, she began looking for an even larger showroom space. She wasn't surprised that the warehouse Alex had shown her went up for sale the weekend before Thanksgiving. She'd been walking back from lunch one day and seen the realtor putting out the sign. Nora stopped her before she got back into the car and asked the price. "'Would you like to see inside?' the girl asked. She was very young and very pretty." Nora wondered how long she'd been a realtor. Sure, said Nora, knowing full well what she was about to see inside. The space was exactly as she'd remembered it, completely empty, save for the marks on the floor indicating where walls had been during previous incarnations. The ponytailed realtor read from her notes that in its most recent life, it had been a crafting co-op where local artisans could rent booths. It also says that its original use was as a lumber warehouse, and then later a a furniture store, finished Nora. Wow, the young lady's blue eyes went wide. You must be, like, psychic or something. I just had a hunch, said Nora, smiling. It looks like a furniture store. Plus, I think I heard about the lumber warehouse situation. The original owner was a man named Hostler, was he not? Get out of town, said the young realtor, exaggerating the gaps between her words. Look right there. She pointed to the name beside original owner on her clipboard list. A. Hostler. Actually, I think I'll stay, Nora said to the girl, and I'll take it, if the sellers will agree to a full price offer. Oh, I'm sure they will, the girl gushed, pulling out her phone to call them. 
They're in a pretty big hurry to unload it. I think somebody must have died or something. The following week, Nora signed the papers. The warehouse was hers. Having the extra space was excellent news, not only for Nora, but also for Vicky. Duke had been pressuring her all a fall semester to do something about clearing out the storage space in Yates's lab, since the old professor had passed, surprisingly, without a will. Vicky was the younger faculty member who knew his work best. The issue was resolved in early December by a day's trip to pick up all of the mirrors to put into storage in one of the top floors of Nora's new warehouse. They agreed to tell no one about the experiments. On that point, both agreed that their mother, Blair, had been correct. It would ruin Vicky's career to associate herself any further with it. What are you going to do with all of them? Vicky asked her sister as they stood surveying the room. It seemed much smaller, crowded as it was by the aisles of shrouded mirrors, which covered an entire floor in the top of the warehouse. Same thing that I do with all the other pieces. Sell them, replied Nora nonchalantly. But don't you think that people will just bring them back? Vicky asked. They're not exactly normal mirrors, you know. Who's going to return a mirror to the place they bought it and say, sorry, can't keep this, it's haunted? Probably no one. They'd be scared people would think they were crazy. Plus, who's to say that the person who buys each mirror might not have a reason for doing so? That they were drawn to that particular looking glass for a reason, to learn something about themselves, as all of us did. I was just concerned that it might create a liability for you, but I hadn't thought about it that way, said Vicky. She and Nora had spent many hours on the phone dissecting the encounters that they'd had. At last, they concluded, if what Alex had said was true, the spirits in any particular mirror chose to reveal themselves purposefully, and only to certain individuals. Perhaps that's all part of it, though, the necessary turning of the wheel of fate, and this space that you've created provides a sort of platform for that to happen, said Vicky. I like to think so, agreed Nora. None of this would have occurred if I hadn't recognized the very first mirror as being so similar to Jasper's and then bought it from Dean Goodnight. That's very true, replied Vicky, shuddering slightly. I wouldn't even be here if you hadn't. I wish there were something you'd let me do to thank you more for... Nora cut Vicky off. For saving my sister's life from our crazy mother? Please. I'm just happy that it's brought us closer again. Besides, I have everything else that I could possibly need. That's true, too. Who would have ever thought that crazy old bat would have left you her part of the whole Chandler Empire? Vicky made air quotes around the last two words. You always told me that Julia hated you. She did, insisted Nora, but not for the reasons I thought. She hated me because she hated herself, and she saw that I was becoming like her married to Jasper, which is too bad. I don't think Julia would have been such a monster if she hadn't been merely reacting to everything she put up with out of Jubal first, then Jasper, for all those years. Vicky nodded. It's a shame, but she was right to be angry that you'd fall into the same pit as she did if she saw a lot of herself in you. It's a classic case of looking glass theory in action. We become not only what we see, but what is expected of us. 
Julia probably grew up taking care of a drunk absentee father and then became the wife of a drunk absentee husband and a mother to a drunk absentee son. Or, to paraphrase Nietzsche, whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process she does not become one herself. For if she gazes long enough into an abyss, the abyss will gaze back into her, said Nora, as she turned toward footsteps coming up the staircase behind her. Since when did you start quoting philosophy? asked Vicky as the door opened. Since she heard it from me, answered Hazel. Is there anything more gratifying to a teacher than to hear her lessons being quoted as she enters a room? Nora rolled her eyes at her friend. Yes, you're a regular fountain of wisdom. Is Dean downstairs? Yep, you know Grandma Dean. She'd never admit that four flights of stairs is about three too many, so she's pretending to look at new pieces while I come up to fetch you. Well, let's not keep her waiting, said Nora. Will you stay for dinner, Vicky? No, I really should get on the road to the airport. The plane back to Baltimore leaves at seven. I can drive you after I speak to Dean, if you like, said Nora. Actually, you better let me, Hazel answered. Grandma Dean wanted to take you out to her warehouse to see something she's found, and you know what an odyssey that is. Half an hour out there, and then she has to root around and find whatever it is she's looking for. But she claims it's important, so who am I to question? Uh-oh, said Vicky, exchanging glances with the other two as she gathered up her things to follow Hazel out the door. God only knows what that could be. Ain't that the truth, replied Nora, switching off the lights as they all went downstairs. Chapter 34 Dane Goodnight switched on the light in the office of her warehouse. Nora was only the slightest bit surprised that the shelves which lined it from floor to ceiling were filled with every possible antique trinket, and also a great number of rare books. Seeing her staring at them, Dean cackled. Didn't peg me as literary type, eh? I thought Hazel told you I used to own a bookstore. Well, she did, but Dean didn't let Nora finish. You thought I only sold them, but didn't read them, huh? To be honest, I didn't give it that much thought. Very few people these days give anything enough thought, but here, Dean said, opening the top of her desk and pulling out a small, flat cardboard box. I found this in an old trunk at an estate sale that I went to a few weeks back. Kept meaning to give it to you, but you was busy. Hazel told me about your little encounter with who was in that looking glass at your house, so I thought you might want this. Nora looked at Dean curiously for a moment as the old woman lit a cigarette and fitted it into her long holder as usual. Catching her staring, Dean waved her off, so Nora opened box. Inside was a much-yellowed and moth-eaten handkerchief. Parts of it were stained a brownish color. However, it had been folded carefully around another object in the box. Even though it was in such poor condition, Nora recognized the monogram on the handkerchief immediately. A.H., she breathed. Where did you find it? Dean took a lengthy puff of her cigarette before answering. I told you. And a trunk full of other old junk. The trunk itself I already sold is a pretty basic old steamer. Nothing special. Just a random jumble sale mishmash of stuff inside. That was tucked up in a little compartment inside the lid. She motioned at the handkerchief-wrapped object in Nora's hand. 
That's not the original box, of course. Of course not, said Nora, as she carefully unwrapped the almost crumbling handkerchief from around the object. Tucked inside was a small silver shaving mirror. It had tiny feet that folded down in front and a little stand on the back so that it could be propped up on a table. It's just like that, not tarnished or nothing when I first found it. I thought it was pretty strange till I put two and two together with that story Hazel told me about your gentleman friend. How much do you want for it? asked Nora. Her eyes stated clearly she was willing to pay any price. Uh, replied Dean, tipping a bit of ash into the tray nearby. Well, I think that free is the only fair price for it. Clearly, it should belong to you. Nora reached out to hug the older lady. You have no idea how much this means. Oh, I think I do, said Dean. Pulling back from the hug, she reached into her desk drawer again and removed a second object. This, Dean said, clamping the cigarette holder firmly between her teeth and holding it up for Nora to see, is the driver's side mirror from a 1949 REO semi-trailer truck. It was the biggest piece left of it that wasn't burnt to a crisp after the wreck, other than me, of course. Didn't have no seat belts in those days, so when it jackknifed, it slung me straight out through the windshield. That's why I part my hair over to the side. Dean ran her gnarled hand over the right side of her wrinkled face, and Nora could see the white line of a flat, thick scar that ran up just from over the outside tip of Dean's eyebrow and into her hairline. It damn near pulled my face off, but poor Jimmy, he wasn't even that lucky. Hit that tree so hard it pushed the engine block into the cab. Steering wheel crushed his chest. Mm. Still to this day, I don't know what he saw in that road when he turned around to cause him jerk the wheel so. He was a great driver. Drove tanks all through the war only to come straight home and die in that damn truck. I was a fool to want to go ride with him. Should have stayed home with little Jim, where everybody said I belonged, but I was crazy for him and crazy to be out of the house. I hadn't been since little Jim was born. If I hadn't been there distracting him, well, Dean sighed heavily. It might have been a different story, but it weren't, and so that's how it was. Jimmy was stuck under the wheel when the engine blew. Don't think he felt it, though. At least I didn't hear him scream. That's been one of the only two things that consoled me through the years about the whole thing. This is the other. She waved the truck mirror at Nora. I know anyone else would think I was crazy, but considering your circumstances, I'm going to tell you like it is. I can see him sometimes. Really? asked Nora, hopeful and disbelieving at the same time. Under what circumstances? Whenever I'm alone and holding it and thinking about, you know, our life, replied Dean, laying the mirror down on her desk and picking up her cigarette holder again. Does it show you the good times or, Nora asked. Oh, I learned real quick to cover it up before it got to the bad part. Just saw that once and it was more than enough, said Dean, taking a puff. But up to that part, though, we was just laughing and flirting around in the cab, you know, rolling down the highway, talking about life. 
After he died, the trucking company acted real sorry about it. Gave me plenty of money. Turns out it was a malfunction in the fuel line that made it blow up like it did. Otherwise, he'd live just with a bunch of broken ribs or something. I didn't have to work, but I really needed a place to go and feel useful every day at a place I felt like going to. So I opened a bookshop, ran it for almost 60 years for that damn Amazon about put me clear out of business. It was a great choice at the time, though. I'd always loved to read ever since I was a little girl, but because of the war, I quit school after the 10th grade. Went to work in a war factory. A lot of girls did those days. The only other things we was expected to do was get married and have babies. I did the marrying part. Married the best fella I could find. Never felt up to doing it again. And when we had little Jim, who was a peach of a boy when he was young, well, that was all I needed. Having the shop was the best way to work and still take care of him. He wasn't even two when his daddy died. I couldn't have left him with some stranger all day and gone off to some other job. It would have been too lonely for me and him. On some days, though, in those mid-afternoon hours, when nobody ever came in and little Jim was off at school later on, it was too quiet even in the shop. So one day, I don't know why, I pulled out that mirror from a drawer, just like I did a few minutes ago here with you, and I just started talking to it. Then all of a sudden, there was Jimmy, plain as the nose on your face, talking back, just like we did in the truck that day. At first, I thought it was a dream, or that I was delirious from the heat, and I got scared. I flipped it over and put it away. But eventually, I came back to it, over and over, whenever I felt like I needed to talk to him about anything. Like when little Jim passed, or when I came down with this old COPD. He was always there to make me feel better. Not that it was ever the same, but it helped, if you catch my drift. Oh, oh, I definitely do, replied Nora. Well, good, I, <clears throat> I thought you would. Dean sniffed loudly and took off her cat's eye glasses, swabbing them on the hem of her navy polo. Nora could see that her eyes were red, but she ignored the tears that threatened to fall. So, now just one more thing, and I won't take up all the rest of your afternoon listening to an old woman, but I think it's important you hear it. All that shit you three were yakking about upstairs? Dean paused to breathe on her glasses and swab more decisively again. All that shrink theory nonsense? Pfft, it's all bunk. My daddy was a drunk, and he beat my mama within an inch of her life on a nightly basis. She went through life like a kicked dog nine days out of ten, but you know what? I did not. Dean popped her glasses back on and pointed at her chest with both thumbs. Big Jim never drank a drop that I saw if it wasn't in fun, and certainly he never laid a hand on me. One other old boy I did for him tried that once, and I slapped the fire out of him. Put a stop to that right quick. I was never afraid to speak my mind on anything. Used to worry about it a little when I was young and trying to be cute. A bunch of girlfriends and I went to this little gypsy fortune teller down in Mobile. Oh, and she told all of them everything they wanted to hear about this feller and that feller and who was whose soulmate and all that rot. But then she come to me 
And I guess she could tell that I thought she was full of it because she looked me dead in the eye and told me, for some people, there is no one. And you know what I did then? What? asked Nora, spellbound. <laughs> I laughed as loud as I could right in her face, just like this. <laughs> Dean let out a wild cackle. And then I told her, shows how much you know, Gypsy, I'm already engaged. What do you think of that? And you know what she said next? All Nora could do was echo, what? Again. Dane calmed down to a hoarse whisper. She said, what fate has written cannot be rewritten. For some people, there will always be no one. And I didn't think a thing of it at the time, but four years later, when I woke up in that hospital bed and they told me Big Jim was gone, I thought of nothing else for days. For some people, there is no one. Her words hung on me like a curse for years until after I opened the shop and on those quiet days when little Jim was in school and those girlfriends who'd asked all those silly questions of that gypsy, well, they kept coming by the shop every day asking my advice on what to do about whatever those same fellers, now they're no-account husbands, had done wrong to them. Day after day, they kept coming until finally I had a revelation. Having no one but myself was just fine most of the time. It was just damn fine. Dean's cigarette had burnt out to its end, and she plucked it from her holder to stab out in the ashtray. So, I don't ever want to hear you worrying about it, Nora. Being alone. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely, said Nora. And thank you for everything. Especially this. She put the mirror back in its box, hugged Dean one last time, and headed home. That evening, Nora had a glass of wine and wandered around her house. She considered all of the little projects she'd left to do until her week off after the holidays because she'd been so busy at the studio. Although her house was impeccably decorated for Christmas, it was all for show. Her thought that making her house part of the tour of homes might bring in more business had worked even better than planned, since it seemed everyone wanted to visit the home of the new designer in town for inspiration. Looking at the stacks of elaborately wrapped gifts under the tree, Nora noticed that all of the tags clearly indicated they were for other members of her family. Vicky hadn't bought her a Christmas present since she'd declared her atheism upon entering medical school, nor had Callista, who loudly voiced her disdain for the overly commercial nature of the holiday season every year, despite accepting whatever gift that Nora had chosen for her anyway. Flipping on the television, Nora settled in to watch the ending of the Albert Finney version of Dickens' A Christmas Carol. It had always been her favorite. Studying her living room as the credits rolled, Nora realized she'd decorated possibly a hundred such rooms over the course of her career in what was known as the traditional English Christmas style, even though she'd never been to England. In fact, Nora pondered, she hadn't been on a vacation of more than three or four days since, well, since she graduated college and first become a designer. Setting her wine glass into the sink, Nora flipped through her phone and deleted every project on her list of to-dos for the week after New Year's. In their place, she added only one item. 
Look up flights to London. And she went to bed. Snuggled in next to her cat, Sydney, who'd taken to curling up under her arm like a child's teddy bear, Nora reached over to her nightstand to turn off the lamp. She smiled as she saw the reflection in the little shaving mirror that Dean had given her. A gentleman with soft, salt-and-pepper, wavy hair slept there without a sound, as he would for the next 59 years. The End This is the end of Chapter 34, the conclusion to Looking Glass Theory. Be sure to tune in next week for the final episodes of my other two novels, The Wolf You Feed and Skeleton's Blood, coming soon, right here on the Haunted Muse podcast. Until then, this is Vivian Catfield, reminding you to remain ever-watchful, because you never can tell. Someone, or something, somewhere out there, just might be watching you.